0: Thanks. Let's take a Bibles this evening and turn to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8 this evening. And let's read uh, verse 20 as we begin. Genesis chapter 8 verse 20. It says, Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savour. Let's open with a word of prayer. To Lord know Father, we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful opportunity to come around your word once again. We pray, Lord, that you bless our time this evening, that you'd be in our midst. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts through your word, may you refresh us this evening, uh, bless us through your word, may Lord we leave this place, uh, Lord knowing that we've been in your presence, and given all glory and honour unto you, I pray that you would enable me now this evening to speak, uh, may be your words, may be your thoughts, we pray that you will be honoured and glorified now, I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> now of course last week we looked at Uh, the start of chapter 8, and we saw Noah and his family patiently waiting uh, on board the ark, waiting for the day to arrive when they could uh, leave the ark and once again stand upon dry ground and once again begin uh, life anew on this uh, planet. And so they were patiently waiting for that day to arrive. We saw that after 150 days uh, on board the ark, God remembered his servant Noah. And we talked about how that word remembered there is the idea that God looked upon Noah and acted to keep his promise to his servant. And so God began to drain the waters from the face of the earth. And We saw how the waters receded rapidly. They rushed rapidly into the places that God had designed for them, those new uh, new ocean beds which were sunk down into the, the earth's crust and the, uh, the mountains sorry, were raised up and so the, the waters raced down into those new ocean beds. And as the waters began to recede, we saw the, uh, the ark sorry, rested upon Mount Ararat. And again, that's the providence of God, making sure that it was safe before the, the currents began uh, as the water receded. And so they were rested upon Mount Ararat and they, even still they, they waited upon the Lord. Even then they didn't just rush outside, they continued to wait uh, for God's direction, for God's leading. And finally that day came, 371 days they were on board the ark. And the command finally came from the Lord to exit uh, the ark. Look there in chapter 8 verse 14, it says... And, in the second month, on the seventh and 20th day of the month, the Earth uh, sorry was the earth dried, and God spake unto Noah, saying, "Go forth of the ark thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee." And so finally, this command comes, and Noah and his family they obey the Lord, and they exit the ark and begin their life anew. And so now we want to conclude uh, chapter eight here by looking at uh, Noah's actions as he first exits the ark. Noah's actions here and God's response. And so first of all, here this evening, we see Noah's sacrifice of praise. Noah's sacrifice of praise. Let's read verse 20 again. It says, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. You know, verse 20, we see the very first thing (coughs) that Noah does upon exiting the ark, is that he offers sacrifice unto the Lord. Noah leads his family here in worshipping and giving thanks unto God. You know, without doubt, this is the right response, isn't it? This is the right response of a godly servant to the grace of God in his life, to give sacrifice of praise and worship unto the Lord. You know, we saw back in chapter 6, And verse 8, it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We talked about how that out of all the inhabitants of the earth, God chose to show grace unto Noah and indeed to his family. We said that wasn't earned. You know, it's not that he deserved God's grace. He, He wasn't special. He wasn't better than everybody else, that he deserved the grace of God. I mean, grace by its very definition is something that's not earned. It's something that's not deserved. And so Noah didn't deserve the grace of God in his life. He experienced God's grace. Why? Because of his faith. Because of his faith. It was his faith in God that saved him. It was because of his faith that he was seen righteous before God. And because of that, he experienced the grace of God in his life. And we've looked at how he experienced that grace in the last couple of chapters, haven't we? The grace of God in his life was seen as God gave him the plans for the ark. And then as he in faith built the ark, he entered in and God in his grace protected and saved Noah and his family from the judgments. And so Noah has experienced the grace of God in his life. And now as he exits the ark, his response is to praise God. His response is to worship the Lord. it is the natural and right response to the grace of God. Now, he leads his family here in giving praise to the one who spared them from the judgments. He gives thanks to God. We're told here that he begins by building an altar unto the Lord. It says that at the very start of verse 20 there, it says, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord. Now, this is the very first time that we've seen an altar mentioned in the word of God. Um, We haven't seen this word, we haven't seen this idea spoken about before this. Now, of course, sacrifices were being offered before this unto the Lord. In Genesis chapter 4, we saw Cain and Abel bringing their sacrifices unto the Lord. You know, Cain's was rejected, Abel's was accepted, but they brought sacrifices to God. And of course, those sacrifices would have continued right up until the flood amongst the godly, the, the righteous generation they would have been offering sacrifices to God. But until now we haven't seen mentions this idea of building an altar where they would offer these sacrifices to God. Now some have inferred from this uh, that this means that they didn't build altars before the flood. You know, that, that rather they only went to the entrance of the garden to worship the Lord. And so some have jumped to that conclusion. And that may be the case, but that's not clear from the word of God. Uh, it would seem better to me that Noah builds this, ark, uh, this altar sorry, out of uh, the, the fact that this is what he knew. It would seem that this is him refreshing and, re- and doing something that he was doing before the flood. He now does it again. He builds an altar, a new altar unto the Lord. And so it seemed to me that it's an implication that they were doing this, and he now builds a new altar, a new altar to God after the flood. And upon this altar, Noah now offers of every clean animal and of every bird unto the Lord. Let's read verse 20 again. It says, And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And so he takes of each of the clean animals and he takes of each of the birds and he offers them to the Lord, And we've mentioned it a few times, but of course, Noah took seven of each clean animal on board the ark and seven of each bird kind onto the ark and so it would seem that it's the seventh of each of these that's offered unto the Lord. Okay, the odd one that he takes and he offers unto God in thanksgiving and in praise and worship here. You know, this is a considerable number of animals here, isn't it? This is a, a great amount of sacrifice that he offers here to the Lord. It's a costly sacrifice that he gives to God. You know, the clean animals, they were the domesticated animals. And so they're the animals that were going to be of most use to Noah and his family. They're the ones that he would have the greatest need of as they began this new life in the earth. Indeed, as we'll see, they're given permission to eat uh, the, the animals now as well, to eat meat, and so these would be the animals that they would eat as well. And so the point is, this is a costly sacrifice that Noah now offers unto the Lord as he takes from each of these and gives them to God. In effect, he gives one-seventh of all of his flocks unto the Lord. That's really what takes place here. One-seventh unto the Lord. Now, one commentator wrote this. He says, as is the nature with true sacrifice, this was a costly offering unto God. But costly sacrifice is pleasing to God. That's true, isn't it? Sacrifice must cost something. You know, it needs to cost us. You know, you remember David, he refused to take that which was given to him and offer to God. He wanted to pay for it. It had to cost him something. That's the same here. This sacrifice was costly to Noah and his family as they brought these sacrifices to God. At the end of verse 20, we're told that these sacrifices were burnt offerings. It says, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So each of these was a burnt offering unto the Lord upon this altar. Now in the Old Testament, when you look at the burnt offering, the burnt offerings were always given as a whole animal. They didn't just give part of it. They gave the whole animal unto the Lord. The whole animal was put upon the altar, and the whole animal was burnt unto the Lord. You didn't keep back any part of it for yourself. Let's just turn quickly to Leviticus chapter one. <clears throat> Leviticus <clears throat> Leviticus one and verse nine. <clears> this <throat> is this but his inward uh, sorry, but his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priests shall burn all on the altar. To be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. Okay, in Hebrews chapter 9, here it says that burn all on the altar. Okay, this was the Levitical law that God gave to Israel. They were to burn all of the sacrifice, the, the burnt offering, all of it was put on the altar. All of it belonged to God, all of it was offered to Him. You see, it symbolised total dedication. Unto the Lord. And it would seem that that's the case here as well in Genesis chapter 8. As Noah offers these burnt offerings unto the Lord, Noah is leading his family here in bringing every part of that sacrifice to God. Giving every part of the animal. Unto the Lord. It's a picture here of complete dedication. Complete dedication. Dedication. It's a statement not only of thanksgiving for what God has done for them, but it's also a a statement of renewed commitment to the Lord. They're starting anew, aren't they, upon the earth? And so this is a statement of renewed commitment unto God. They're giving everything to the Lord. You know, God had been gracious in protecting them through the flood, saving them, sparing them. It's only fitting that they now give thanks and dedicate themselves fully to, unto the Lord and to His will. That's really what this is a statement of. It's a statement of thanksgiving and complete dedication to God as they begin this new life, if you like, upon the earth. You know, in Noah's response here to God's grace, we see a wonderful example for us today. You see a wonderful example. You see, like Noah, you know, if we're saved, we've experienced the grace of God in our lives, haven't we? We've experienced the grace of God in, in a tremendous way. In that God has given us that which we do not deserve. He's given us forgiveness of sin. He's given us eternal life, a, a promised home in heaven with Him one day. We've experienced the grace of God. And we experience it daily. Indeed, God has done so much for us. And the natural response to God's grace ought to be one of willing sacrifice unto Him. That should be our natural response that we are led to. Give sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and sacrifice of dedication unto the Lord. Now, of course, we don't bring physical animal sacrifices like Noah did. But the New Testament talks about the types of sacrifices that we can bring. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. And Hebrews 13 and verse 15, it reads this, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So we could bring the sacrifice of praise, the, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto God for what he has done. Thanks for all that he has done for us. The sacrifice of praise. And of course Romans 12 Speaks about us bringing as a sacrifice our bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Let's turn over there. I know we know the verse well. Romans 12. <clears throat> Romans 12 and verse 1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, they may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so Romans 12 talks about us bringing our bodies, our, ourselves as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. You know, this is us bringing ourselves to God and dedicating ourselves fully unto the Lord and to his service and to his will. It's a bit like what Noah was declaring here by offering everything to God. A, a picture of dedication, commitment to the Lord. You see, like Noah brought those burnt offerings unto the Lord, committing himself fully to God, we need to bring ourselves as a sacrifice unto the Lord. A sacrifice, uh, dedicating ourselves completely to Him. You know, Paul declares there in verse 1 of Romans 12, he says that this is our reasonable service. This is the only reasonable response. It's the very least we can do after all that God has done for us. After God's grace Towards us, the very least we can do is give ourselves back to Him as a living sacrifice. Surrender fully to His will, to His control. You know, by doing so, we give Him glory. We give Him thanksgiving and praise for what He has done. Like, no, this is the only right and natural response. In verse 21 of our passage there, uh, Genesis Genesis chapter 8, we see how God responds to this sacrifice. It says in verse 21, <clears throat> And the Lord smelled a sweet savour. And verse 21 tells us that Noah's sacrifice here unto the Lord was a sweet-smelling savour unto God. Now, the, the writer here, of course, is using human terms to help us understand a divine truth. Okay? The, the point is that God is satisfied with the sacrifice that Noah offers unto him. He's satisfied. He's pleased with Noah. He's pleased with Noah's worship, Noah's thanksgiving, Noah's sacrifice. You know, likewise, Romans 12 verse 1, as we read before, makes it clear that when we present ourselves as a living sacrifice unto the Lord, it's pleasing in His sight. It says that it's an, it's an acceptable sacrifice. It's acceptable under God. It pleases the Lord. You know, so today, I think the the first question we need to ask ourselves, we need to examine our own hearts, don't we? Our own lives and ask ourselves the question, how have we responded to the grace of God in our lives? You know, how have we responded to God's grace? You know, have we responded accordingly with thanksgiving and praise? Have we responded by dedicating ourselves fully unto the Lord? You know, is our all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Now, as Romans 12 says, it is our reasonable service. It's the right response to the grace of God in our lives. And so we've seen Noah's sacrifice of praise. We see secondly now God's promise to mankind. God's promise to mankind. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 8. In verse 21 it says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything that living as I have done. While the earth remaineth seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. In verse 21 and 22, we now see that God makes a gracious promise here to all mankind. Not just to Noah, it's to all mankind and these words here are not spoken directly to Noah. these words are spoken by God to himself okay within himself it says there in verse 21 and the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart the Lord said in his heart it speaks about God making a decision okay this is an inward resolve of his will that God makes a decision that this is what he's going to do and this is God's gracious response here to Noah's faith to Noah's worship and obedience God makes this promise now to all mankind and as we read on we see what this promise is we see firstly that God declares that he will not curse the ground again for man's sake. Okay, Look there in verse 21 and the Lord said in his heart I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake and so this is the first part of the promise God declares that he will not curse the ground again for man's sake. Now this, rather than being a direct reference to the flood, is instead a reference to the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Let's go back to Genesis 3, verse 17. In Genesis 3, verse 17, it says, And unto Noah he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying... Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. And sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. In Genesis 3, the result of Adam's sin was that there was a curse upon the earth. Okay, the ground, the earth was cursed. It was a curse that affected all of creation, not just mankind. And it's a curse that will remain upon the earth until the new heaven and new earth is created. As Revelation 22 verse 3 says, and there shall be no more curse, talking about the new earth. And so until then, that curse will remain upon the earth. Until then, the curse of sin will remain in effect upon mankind, upon all creation. And it's this curse that seems to be in reference here at the start of verse 21. As God declares here, he says, I will not again curse the ground. Notice that I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. And so this is not God saying that he's going to remove the curse, okay, that he's going to remove it at this time, but rather this is a declaration that he's not going to add to that curse. God says I won't add to the curse upon the ground, the curse that I made because of Adam's sin. This is a promise that God would never again bring a worldwide curse or judgment Upon man's domain. God promised in his grace not to add to man's affliction. Not to add to the earth's affliction, if you like. It's a promise here not to add to that curse. And then adding to this promise, we read at the end of verse 21, it says, and the very end of the verse there it says, Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. And now this is a direct reference to the flood. Okay, so the first part, as I said, is a reference to the curse. And God says he will not do that again, won't add to that curse. And now at the end of the verse, we have a direct reference to the flood. God promises that he will never again destroy every living thing with a flood. Now in chapter 9, verse 11, this is going to be reiterated more clearly, if you like, unto Noah. Chapter 9, verse 11, says, And I will establish my covenant with you, Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there, there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And so in chapter 9 verse 11, it's made very clear that God promises they will never destroy the earth again with a flood. Never destroy all life with a flood. And so this promise here in verse 21 has two parts, if you like, doesn't it? Okay, there's the promise not to curse the ground again, not to add to that curse. as, as he did when Adam sinned. And there's the promise not to destroy all life again with the flood. And then the reason for this promise from God is given to us in the middle of verse 21, between those two promises. It says in verse 21 there, And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. So it says there in the middle of the verse, it says, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is the reason why God will not bring these two things again. Now as we read this, it seems like a strange reason, doesn't it? Like a strange reason not to add to the curse. A strange reason not to bring another flood destroying all life. If anything, as you read that, it seems like a reason why God should bring judgment. Okay, it says, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. That seems like a key reason why God should bring another curse. Why God should judge mankind with another flood. In fact, in chapter 6 and verse 5, God declared that the reason he was going to destroy man with a flood the first time was because of a very similar thing. Chapter 6, verse 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Very similar statement, isn't it? Very similar wording. Between the two passages, there's not much difference. And yet the response of God in both passages is completely different. In chapter 6, God declares this and then he brings judgment, the flood destroying all life. In chapter 8, God declares, because of this, I won't bring a curse again. And I won't destroy with a flood. And so the question then is, what exactly does this statement here in verse 21 mean? What does it mean when the Lord says, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth? What's God saying here in the context? What's he talking about? Well, the key to understanding what the Lord means here seems to be in the words, from God. His youth. Okay, at the end of that phrase. Okay, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. You see, this is a statement of the fact that man is a sinner by nature. Man is a sinner from his youth. He is born in sin. The human heart is incurably wicked. And judgment can only deal with the sinner. Judgment can't deal with the sin. Problem, man's problem. It can't solve man's problem, can it? It can't solve the, the natural problem that man has, that we're born in sin, we have a sin nature. You see, God knows that what man needs more than anything is a redeemer to cure man of this sin problem, to remove the curse. Morris writes this, he says, here is a testimony both to what theologians call original sin, and universal depravity and also to God's redeeming mercy because man is helpless to save himself his very thoughts born and nurtured in sin he desperately needs the grace of God thus for the very reason that man is completely unable to save to save himself therefore God saves him. You see man is destitute, man is uh, a sinner by nature We're depraved. We can't do anything to help ourselves. And God knows that. And so God knows that what man needs is his grace. Man needs God to send a redeemer. Man needs a way of salvation. Another commentator wrote this. It was not because the thoughts and desires of the human heart are evil that God would not smite any more every living thing. That is to say, would not exterminate it judicially. But because they are evil from his youth up, Because evil is innate in man. And for that reason, he needs the forbearance of God. You see, we need the forbearance of God, don't we? We need the grace of God. We need the the, the forbearance of God, and God makes the promise here that he will forbear with man. That's really what God's saying. He's saying, man is a sinner from his youth up, and so I will forbear with man. I will forbear. I will hold off my judgment, basically, God says. And God, as we know, will send a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this, of course, does not mean that God won't and that God doesn't judge mankind for their sin. He does, and He will. Sin has consequences. And as individuals, we are judged for our sin by God. If we are sinners, we die in our sin, we are lost and go to hell. But God is long-suffering. And God, in His long-suffering and in His mercy, promised... Not to add to the curse, not to add to the <clears throat> sorry, not to add to the curse here, and he promised not to destroy all life with a flood, and instead he promised to forbear, providing a way of escape, the way of escape from the judgment of death, which of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse twenty two, we're told how long God's gracious promise of forbearance will last. It says in verse 22, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. See, God has promised to forbear with mankind. And God's promise is that his forbearance will last while the earth remaineth. While the earth remaineth. See, the day is coming when the Lord will bring judgment. Upon the earth. Upon the whole earth once more. The day of the Lord will come and God will destroy this old earth with fire this time. Second Peter tells us that. Let's turn over there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Second Peter <clears throat> chapter 3. <clears> 2 <throat> Peter 3 and verse 10. It says that the day of the Lord will come and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And so the day is coming. The day of the law is coming when God will once again bring judgment upon the whole earth. God's forbearance will come to an end, his long suffering, his patience with mankind. And God will destroy the earth, this time by fire and the earth with the curse we burned up and God will create a new heaven and a new earth Revelation 21 just quickly Revelation 21 <clears throat> Revelation 21 verse 1 Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 it says and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea The day is coming when God will create a new heaven, a new earth. The old heaven, the old earth will pass away, will be burned up. And there will be the new heaven, new earth. The day is coming when God will bring that final judgment upon all the earth. And it's a judgment by fire this time, not by flood. But you know the wonderful thing in Genesis chapter 8 is that we have the assurance of God that while the earth remaineth, Or until that day comes, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Isn't that a wonderful declaration from God here in Genesis chapter 8? After the flood, the Lord says that his forbearance will last while the earth remaineth. And then he says, and these things will continue. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease until the day of the Lord arrives nothing can stop those natural processes from continuing I don't know about you but that gets me excited that makes me praise God nothing can stop those processes until the day of the Lord comes you see the earth will continue to rotate on its axis in space and every day The sun will rise and the sun will set. We will have day and night. The earth will continue to orbit around the sun and we will have our four seasons. We'll have summer and winter. We'll have autumn, we'll have spring. It'll happen every single year. It'll continue by God's grace. The weather cycles will continue bringing rain upon the earth and we'll have seed time, we'll have harvest. And by implication, the earth will continue to produce enough food for mankind to survive to sustain life. See, the point is, we have nothing to fear because God promises that these things shall not cease. Shall not cease. See, Psalm 24 verse one declares, the earth is the Lord's. It belongs to God. He created it, he founded it, he established it, it belongs to him. And God will continue to care for it continue to care for its inhabitants until the day of the Lord comes, until the day of judgment arrives. You see, we have nothing to fear from so-called global warming. We have nothing to fear from so-called climate change or anything else. We don't even have anything to fear from this virus. We have nothing to fear because God has declared that these things shall not cease. And God will keep that promise. Now, Weasby writes this, he says, We are prone to take for granted sunrise and sunset, the changing face of the moon and the changing seasons, but all of these functions are but evidences that God is on the throne and keeping his promises. All creation preaches a constant sermon, day after day, season after season, that assures us of God's loving care does. Every day, we see God's loving care. And as believers, we ought to daily rejoice. We ought to daily rejoice in God's loving care and praise Him that He is faithful to keeping His word. You know, and our response to His wonderful grace and mercy, as we said earlier, is that we ought to lay all on the altar of sacrifice unto Him. Sacrifice and service unto our God for all He's done for us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you so much for Genesis chapter 8 and Lord, the wonderful promise here at the end end of the chapter, Lord. These things shall not cease. These things will continue until the day the Lord arrives. Lord, you are in control. You're on the throne and every day we see your loving care. Lord, may we every day give praise and glory unto your name. And Lord, may we as believers dedicate ourselves fully to you to serve you, to honor you, and to seek to, to be all you want us to be in this life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.